giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Friday, November 16th. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Gary Bernhardt. Hey, Gary. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. Thanks. Awesome. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. So, Gary, I know this awesome functional language with monads that I think you should check out. Oh, is that called Lisp or something like yes, that? Yes, it is called Lisp. Absolutely. Oh, okay. You know, I, I, I've I heard had that joke it. planned before this podcast, and then you went and changed your Twitter status. <laughs> I did just the other day. Yeah. Now my status is about how I don't know Ruby. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that to counter like the confused people that respond to your tweets? Um. Well, I, I don't expect it to actually counter that, but it is sort of a reaction. Yeah. My status tends to be a reaction to whatever's frustrating me at the time. So. Yeah. And so um, uh, we, we, you and I met at uh, RubyConf this year, and we were talking, and I told you that I used to follow you on Twitter but had to stop because you kind of seem like you're upset all the time. Yeah, well, um, that, the, the weird thing about me and Twitter is that my, my negative thoughts come out a lot more than my positive thoughts. I almost never say I'm, I'm happy about something. Right. Um, but whenever, whenever I'm frustrated, I do. I don't know why that is. Uh, at, as I think you commented when we met at uh, RubyConf, mm-hmm. it's it's not the same in real life. I, I actually, <laughs> exactly. I actually do like some things. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah, you're a totally pleasant and, and happy person, or at least the normal level of happy that I would expect. Right, um, right. <laughs> so it's sort of your, your venting place, maybe. I guess so, yeah, for better or worse. Yeah. So it, it's been almost two years that you've been running Destroy All Software. That's um, right. Which, yep. just in case people aren't aware, is sort of a bi-weekly... Uh, does that mean every other week? It can mean either, That's unfortunately. Right. Okay, so it's, it's every yeah. two weeks you put out a 10, 15-minute-ish screencast talking right. about various uh, programming ideas. Yep, that's that's pretty much the thing. Uh, I started it in well, I formed the company on January first, twenty eleven, so I wouldn't have to pay taxes for the previous year. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's been it launched on March tenth, and it's been so it's been almost two years, yeah. almost its two year anniversary. Wow. So how do you feel looking back on on the body of work that you've created? Um, well, it's uh, oh man, there's so many answers to that question. <laughs> um, I, I mean, on the one hand, I, I feel I, I get a lot of people telling me that you've you've significantly impacted the way I build software or you've, uh, you've caused me to go learn about functional programming where I never did before or about true unit testing or something like that, mm. which is uh, a tremendously rewarding feeling, Absolutely. obviously. But the, um, uh, the more interesting part for me personally, uh, or the part that's about me more, is that it really reflects my sort of, uh, the way that I've changed as a programmer over the last two years. Because... Uh, at the beginning, it was very much about Unix and about uh, isolated unit testing with stubs and mocks. Nowadays, it's more likely to be about isolated unit testing uh, in a more functional style, so not using stubs and mocks, using values instead. Um, and it tends to be less about Unix as my disillusionment has grown <laughs> in that department <laughs> mm-hmm. over time. So it sort of is a story about about me as a programmer over time, which I think a lot of the subscribers actually um, they actually see that they they'll, they'll tell they, they told me that before I realized that, which mm. was really interesting. Yeah, that is, and and I just I happened to pull up a, a really old one, like number like thirteen or something, the other day, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to hear like the production value and just also the speed at which you're you're moving seemed a lot slower actually. Back then, it seemed slower than now. Uh, yes. Oh, interesting. I was afraid that the opposite had happened. Um, 
Yeah, so back then I was recording on a very cheap microphone, uh, like a couple feet from my mouth. Mm -hmm. I was standing at my kitchen counter, which overlooks my living room. So I was on the living room side speaking into the kitchen, which is the worst possible surface to speak into because it's large and flat and solid. Uh Um, Nowadays, I'm recording in a professional studio. The mic is three inches from my mouth. I actually have some idea about how to use it. Right. (laughs) Uh, this probably doesn't sound quite as good as my professional studio recordings because I'm now back in my living room. But um, yeah, the the difference is tremendous and uh, was learned just by trial and error. Yeah. So so you met you touched on the fact that you're you're thinking more of uh, a sort of this functional core. And I think you said it at RubyConf you felt like functional core imperative shell, which is one of the screencasts you put out, was sort of the most important thing that you've you've come up with or that you've you've bumped into. Yeah. It. Um... It's 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 what I've been searching for 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 several years. The the solution to the problem of, of isolated unit testing uh, with stubs and mocks, which has the horrible massive downside of uh, the stubs or the mocks can go out of sync with the actual production system, mm-hmm. the, the boundaries that they're mocking and stubbing. And this is I've been doing isolated testing for something like five or six years, maybe. And this is this has bothered me so much the entire time, and I've never I've never seen a real solution to it. There's there are sort of hacks and workarounds, but there's not a, a deep fundamental solution. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that the I/O monad is the solution to use the the sort of Haskell-y term, uh, or in other words, separating the parts of the program that that change the outside world from the parts that just compute things, mm. that that is the solution. It was like one of the most um, uh, one of the biggest revelations I've had under my own mental power, like one of the biggest revelations I've had on my own mm. as a programmer. Well, so it's it, this might be sort of uh, too big a topic to really dive into, but can you can you kind of go into a little more detail about why this solves that problem or how it does? Right. So basically what happens is if you have functional pieces uh, that just take arguments and return a new value, mm. then you can easily test those in isolation. In other words, uh, you can pass a value in, you can get the value back out, and you know that it wasn't hitting the disk, it wasn't hitting the network, uh, it wasn't interacting with lots of other objects. Uh, it's easy to form pieces of code that are naturally isolated in this way. Mm-hmm. And this removes the need for stubs and mocks, which removes the entire uh, boundary problem. Removes the need for stubs and mocks. Hmm. Because uh, the... The interface for this for this object, this theoretical whatever object it is that we're that we're writing in a functional style, mm-hmm. the interface is the value that comes into it and the value that goes out. It's not uh, it's not making a destructive call into the database saying update yourself because it's not allowed to. Uh, if we were, you have to imagine this uh, as if we're in a purely functional programming language, a uh, programming language where all functions are not allowed to change anything mm-hmm. uh, and not allowed if, to look outside themselves for state. Well, that's a first state, right? Um, looking out now, calling outside yourself is a different question, and I, I think I've actually done a poor job of articulating the relationship between external calls and this style of programming, which isn't even clear to me yet, to be honest. Mm. Um, to get true isolation, you have to not call outside yourself, mm-hmm. and it is possible to build an entire program out of small functions that don't call outside themselves, and then one thin layer around them that aggregates them all into an actual program. Um, and, but that is sort of a, a different topic, a deeper topic. Hmm. In any case, uh, by, writing, by writing pure functions, uh, they're easy to test because it's value in and value out. And that is exactly what a unit test is good at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you, you relegate the destructive parts of the program, the I.O. Uh, and the, the state, the, the, the 
um, the state that changes over time. You relegate those into a, a small piece that surrounds the functional core, uh, the piece that I call the imperative shell. And that is where all the nasty integration with the outside world lives. And that's what you integration test. But because it doesn't have the core logic of the program in it, because that logic is buried in the functional piece, the, the imperative shell, the outer shell, can be integration tested with very few test cases to make sure everything's actually interacting. Mm. So that is my sort of standard functional core imperative shell uh, spiel. Mm-hmm. I hope it make I hope it made sense in that short form. It's normally a whole talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, and I think I did follow up. But so so one thing I'm not totally sure on. So I often think of passing in stubs um, as a way of uh, satisfying dependencies in a very simple way. Like if class A uses class B or an instance of something like class B. And instead of passing in class B, I'm going to pass in a stub instead. And like, it's, it's a sort of a, to simplify that dependency. So I always know what value it returns, for example. So, so how does this functional approach fix that? Does it just say you're not going to call any dependencies like that? Well, you, you may call those dependencies. Um, that's, that's the part that's not clear to me yet. Okay. The relationship between this style and uh, external calls, pure, pure calls, calls into pure functions, but functions that are external to the one under test. Mm-hmm. Um, in general... Even if you have a large graph of interacting functions that are all calling each other, uh, if they are pure functions, the tests are still going to be at least very fast. You're still going to get, to get the speed benefit mm. of isolated unit testing because you're not hitting any I.O. There's no disk. There's no network. Uh, there's not even state that can be held over time. So all the sources of slowness are sort of removed. Mm. Now, as far as uh, the other benefits of isolated unit testing, things like localizing failures so that uh, if a test fails, you you have reasonable confidence that the thing it's testing is actually where the bug is, mm. as opposed to some deep dependency it happens to rely on. Um, the the more you integrate these functions, the less of that you're going to get. Mm. But uh, that that is a trade-off that you're much more free to make in a purely functional system, I think. It's much easier to see how to make that trade-off than in a in a Rails app where you know everything depends on a model that's coupled to the disk, ultimately. Right. And so, so one of the, the promises I hear um, with, so you mentioned value objects, which mm-hmm. um, sort of these immutable objects that are, uh, they don't change over time. They just return values from themselves or they are values, values themselves. Well, I, that's another term that I use a little bit ambiguously. Okay. Um, the, the pure form is that a value object is just something like a struct or a hash. It, it's, it has no it has no code associated with it. Mm. Uh, it's something you could represent in in a C data structure. Mm-hmm. Um, the but the the slightly broader form that I sometimes use, or what I sometimes mean when I say value object, is an object that that contains values. You know, it contains uh, fields on it, and they're accessible from the outside. But it also may have some methods on it that are pure functions. Mm-hmm. So uh, they they don't hit the network. They don't hit the disk. They hopefully don't even take arguments. So it's things like I have a post, like a blog post object, and it has a slug method. But the slug is a pure function of the title, which is part of the blog post. Mm -hmm. So from the outside, you can't really tell whether that slug was computed from the title or whether it was part of the object as the object was instantiated. In other words, it was Mm -hmm. pre-computed. The difference between those two is not clear from the external interface. Mm. So and are these immutable as well, these value objects? Um, yes, as I use them, they are, they are always immutable. Okay. Cause so, so I haven't, I haven't done a lot. I haven't used value objects a lot myself, but one of the things I've heard about immutable data structures in general is that they tend to make your program easier to reason about. 
Have you uh, experienced that? Do you do you feel like that's true in practice? I uh, I have experienced that. I have not done the the massive amount of of functional program programming that I would need to to go out and claim that that is true mm-hmm. uh, based on my own experience. Um, the the reason I'm willing to accept that as true is that I have seen it in in sort of uh, in small to medium sized cases, and the massive number of people who I I think are very intelligent people who are thinking deeply about what they're doing who say that mm-hmm. uh, that that convinces me to a large extent. Yeah. Uh, so so one thing that you and I talked about earlier was that you told me you want to fix the kernel. Yeah, that's a big topic. Yeah. Can you touch on that for us? <laughs> I can. Um, the oh man, this is a really big and deep story. But well, I'll see if I can summarize it. Hmm. So it, it starts with uh, I want I want to be programming in a language that has immutable core types. Uh, it also maybe has mutable core types for when you really want them, but by default, uh, things like arrays and hashes are immutable. And I also want to be working in a language with Erlang-style concurrency, so the actor model where every process has an inbox and you send messages to that process mm. uh, via its inbox, which is something which looks a lot like a, a queue, basically. Mm-hmm. The, the problem with doing this is that in order to send something to an inbox, you have to have the value on hand. You have to have a value that can be sent to, the, to this other process. And uh, if, if you want to reason easily about sending something across a po- process boundary, Without actually copying it, then it needs to be immutable. Um, so now we're starting to to descend into the VM layer from the language layer. You want to be able to quickly send a value to another process, and doing that quickly means you can't copy it. You have to send a reference over, and the only way that's safe is if the reference is immutable. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense so far? Yep. Okay. Uh, so once you start talking about sending immutable references across a process boundary. Uh, now you, you can only do that with threads currently, right? Because processes don't don't share their heap. Mm. Uh, you could do nasty tricks with shared memory, but then uh, it, it, it's a very unpleasant experience. So uh, to skip a few steps, what this ends up with is you have to move the VM into the kernel. You run everything in ring zero, which means you remove uh, memory protection completely from the kernel, and you rely on the VM to do memory protection. Your, your operating system can only execute bytecode, and that means that the VM can ensure that your, your programs are not doing anything that would access another process's memory in a way that's not allowed. Hmm. So um, I realize that's a very, very quick explanation of a very large topic, and I probably skipped 100 steps. But uh, it starts with the, with the desire for immutable values and the ability to send those to other processes in massive quantities quickly. And it just sort of uh, it reveals this cascading series of problems with the infrastructure that impede that kind of programming. Hmm. So when will we see your Kickstarter program to uh, do this? Well, we'll see. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking seriously about, I mean, I would start at the top, right? I would do a programming language. If that worked out, I would uh, do a VM. If the VM worked out, I might actually start a kernel. So uh, the idea of writing a kernel is probably what five years off or something like that Mm -hmm. something way in the future way beyond my my, what actual planning i ever do right um but i i am i'm fairly sure that i'm actually going to try to take take some time take a sabbatical basically uh stop screencasting stop conference speaking and just dive into a programming language and just try to start solving uh really difficult problems the kind of problems that sadly i've not been solving 
uh, for the last few years of my life. Hmm. You, you, creating your own programming language. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So uh, it would be a, a fresh programming language design. Uh, it probably would not involve a VM at first. I probably would just cross compile to mm-hmm. uh, JavaScript and run it in V8 or something, uh, something easy like that. But it, it would definitely be a, a fresh programming language. Yeah. Interesting. That's, that's got to be appealing. I imagine after two years of, of screencasting, of taking a break and doing something that lets you, rather than something you have to ship, you know, a day later, something that you can work on and really dig into for a long period of time. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a big part of my motivation. I, I mean, I want to do it because uh, it's an interesting problem in itself, and I want to do it because um, there are there are certain uh, certain programming language designs that I think should exist but don't. Um, but really, my my deepest personal motivation is that I I used to be a C hacker. You know, I used to I've written a, a fair bit of kernel driver code in my life. I've I've put something like forty thousand lines of embedded C into production. Hmm. And uh, I've I've been in in Python and Ruby for so long. I've been screencasting. I've been away from I've been away from the iron, you know, away from the machine. And uh, and I I feel drawn drawn back to it. Interesting. I I remember when I left the Sea World for Ruby. I felt so liberated and like life was good. I wonder if I will. I wonder if that's a natural occurrence where people say you know, I kind of miss going back down to that level where I know everything that's going on. It, it may be. I, I think to some extent it probably is. Um, it depends. Um, my personality is such that the, 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 the complete control that C gives me, the, the knowledge that there is no abstraction between me and the hardware, or there's only a minimal abstraction, uh, is very appealing to me. I think it depends on, on who you are. Mm-hmm. But when I, when I did stop doing C, uh, I was going from C to Python at the time. And I was very relieved to get out of it because uh, malloking and freeing memory is, is not fun times. <laughs> right. Uh, so, so, yeah, I think uh, for me, it's sort of cyclical. I think I come and go. Mm. So there's sort of a, this, there feels a little bit like there's a resurgent of, or a renaissance maybe, of object-oriented design discussion happening in the Rails world. Um, it seemed like a few years ago there was a bit of pushback from people that maybe were felt like they were fleeing Java and wanted to sort of shrug off everything about that. Um, and then now sort of people are returning back to this and saying, hey, maybe there's some good ideas and some things worth talking about in OOP. Um, what, what kind of advice would you give to people that are sort of new to this world and are trying to uh, improve their chops? Like what, what, let me rephrase that. What advice do most less experienced programmers need? Hmm. Well, those are two very different questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first one was, was a very vocational question, and the second one is um, uh, more of like a, well, f- from my perspective, more of like a personal growth kind of question. Yeah, why don't you answer whichever um, one is more interesting to you? <laughs> okay. Um, well, let's see. I think I could probably answer them both or at least provide a relationship between them. Please. Um, in the, rail, the Rails world does tend to be more vocational in, in the form of the first question you asked. Mm-hmm. The, the, the thinking uh, among, among Rails programmers tends to be, um, wh- what, what can I learn to let me build a Rails app uh, more, more effectively or faster or more reliably or whatever, whatever positive attribute they assign to it? Mm. And I think that that underlies the, uh, a lot of the current interest in, in uh, OOP uh, in, the, in the sort of Java style, let's say, because it's not really the small talk style. It's the sort of patterns and solid and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, all that style. The um, as far as more general advice, I I, uh, 
I would advise anyone who, who wants to be a professional programmer to, do, to spend a non-trivial amount of time doing real functional programming. Uh, just, it doesn't even have to be in a functional language. Just take Ruby and write a non-trivial program with no mutation or with all the mutation uh, enclosed in one small space. And just observe, what's, observe your thoughts, observe your feelings as you're, as you're writing that code and the way that you feel differently uh, about the system. And I mean things like, uh, are you afraid that this piece is going to break versus that piece? Mm. And why are you afraid that one piece will break and the other one won't? And if you just observe your own emotional response to, to building the system, uh, you can learn a lot about uh, why, why certain techniques are valuable in certain places. What do you what do you expect people to discover when they do that? Well, if uh, if the conventional wisdom from the functional folks is true, then you're going to discover that the functional pieces are less scary and uh, are less likely to break, are easier to understand. Mm. Um, you, I think that that examining examining yourself in this way as you're programming is also the key to realizing that. Uh, how do I put this? to sort of separating the parts of Ruby culture that are genuinely good and well-founded from the parts that are just sort of fads. Mm. Um, things like, uh, if you just observe your reaction to monkey patching, you're going to very quickly learn uh, why monkey patching is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. um, and and as, a, as a community, Ruby has mostly moved away from that, I think, nowadays. Um, but it, if, I think that if people had observed their own reactions to programming more closely and observed which parts were scary or which parts were frustrating, uh, then we could have avoided the, uh, the, the window of, let's say, 2006 until 2010 or so. That window where monkey patching was just a thing that everyone did. All the libraries did it, right? And now they're all backing it out. Mm. Um, so there, uh, there is tremendous insight in, in your own intuition. Even if you're uh, a, a beginning programmer, your intuition uh, about what is scary or what is frustrating uh, will tell you which parts are beyond your your current abilities, and it turns out that monkey patching is always frustrating and always scary because it's beyond everyone's abilities. Mm. It's interesting. You have this thing that that seems like it should be such a purely logical experience, which is programming, and intuition can be a valuable uh, thing in that endeavor. Yeah, I, I think it's tremendously undervalued. Uh, the The type of personality that that becomes a programmer is one that that devalues. Uh, emotional experience in general, mm. I think that's probably less true in, in the Ruby world than it is in general uh, for something like a C programmer. Say, mm. um, <laughs> we're going to get some hate uh, mail for that comment right there. <laughs> that's okay. Um, uh, well, I say this as I mean, I in a in a fundamental way, I consider myself a C programmer. You know, that's 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 where I started. I, I did that uh, for a long time. I when I was in college, I would tell people that all, all other programming languages are stupid and you should just ignore them and, and write C code. You know, I was a very, um, I, I was very 20 years old in, in one way, but, right. um, you know, I, that, that's what I was. And, and I, I, in many ways, I think I embody the, the stereotype of a programmer who, who tries to ignore or push away, uh, the emotional component of life. And by consciously bringing it back in, I think it's made me a better programmer, um, which is counterintuitive, but uh, it is what it is. Mm. Yeah, that, that's, that actually sort of touches on something that I wanted to ask you about, which is, do you have, were there, did you have significant mentors or learning experiences that were particularly valuable for you? Yeah, I, um, well, let's, I'll, I'll give you the really quick version of sort of my, my history. Mm -hmm. 
I started around like 13 and did stupid kid stuff that isn't really important. Uh, I started a CS degree at 18. I finished that degree at 23. So I was there for five years. Um, That was only four and a half years of classes and then uh, seven months of a co-op. On that co-op, I was doing embedded C work. So that's where I shipped uh, that co-op and some part-time work after it is where I shipped something close to 40,000 lines of, of C code. And uh, at that job, I had my, my, uh, my nominal boss, or maybe my non-nominal boss, um, the, the person who was running the project I was on, uh, Nick Barrent, uh, he sort of introduced me to a lot of, of Unix stuff. He, uh, on basically my first day, he said, well, we, were, we do development on Linux machines, so you're going to have to learn an editor. Uh, you can learn Vim or Emacs. I, I know Emacs, so if you learn Emacs, I can help you. Mm-hmm. So I learned Emacs. Um, and then I proceeded to learn uh, a whole lot about how Unix actually works. Um, the, the sort of the POSIX part of Unix, the, the, the C API that it comes with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, all, that was all sort of, I was guided through all of that by, by Nick, who had been doing Unix stuff for many years. Um, after that, I did a startup with, with Nick and, uh, and Mike Branicki, who's a professor at Case Western Reserve, which is where I went to school. And uh, there I just sort of hacked Python for about three years, sort of mostly in isolation, technically, uh, on the technical side. And uh, I I think that that was actually a a sort of time for my thoughts to contract, for me to discard a whole lot of ideas and just sort of focus down on dynamic languages and on unit testing. After after Bitbacker, uh, that was the the three-year startup, I did some consulting and then I came into Destroy All Software. Um, now, somewhere in there, around the end of Bitbacker, beginning of consulting, uh, I met Corey Haynes, and we both lived at Cleveland. Lived in Cleveland at the time. Uh, no one knew who either of us was really at the time. Um, and uh, of course, he's he's now super famous for Code Retreat and his programming tour. And I'm much less famous for things like Destroy All Software. But he actually was sort of a, a mentor to me on the topic of isolated unit testing. Um, I, we both went to the Ruby group every month Mm -hmm. and every month I would come to him and say, Corey, I've been doing this isolation thing and, uh, I have problems X, Y, and Z. And it seems like this is just a horrible thing to do. And he would give me, you know, his two minute answer that, no, you, you shouldn't be doing X. You should be doing X prime or whatever, right? You shouldn't be, um, the reason your tests are hard to write and hard to mock things out is because your objects are interacting with too many other objects, just like the most basic things. Mm -hmm. Um, but he was there to sort of tell me why I was wrong. Uh, so he acted as a mentor in the, in the sort of isolated unit testing uh, phase of my learning. Hmm. Uh, but those, those two people I mentioned, Nick and Corey, are the, the, two, uh, main, the, the two biggest single influences on me as a programmer, I think. Hmm. Interesting. Sounds like we'll have to have uh, Corey on the podcast at least. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised you haven't. Yeah. He's, uh, yeah, he's a fairly prolific uh, podcast uh, guest, I guess. I'll have to track him down, figure yeah. out what we have to bribe him with. <laughs> Probably not much. Yeah, that's true. He likes to talk. He does like to talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to loop back to Destroy All Software for a minute. Sure. Um, are you comfortable disclosing how many subscribers you have these days? Um, I actually stopped doing that. Okay. Uh, I used to say, what was the last? I think the last number I said was a thousand, or I was almost at a thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was probably, let's say that was the, the tw- let's say that was about a year ago. So that was like maybe fall 2011. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the reason I stopped was actually uh, I, I would make the entire company open if if there were no uh, if it were sort of up to me. But if I if my company is open and people see that I make more than the average programmer salary, which I do, uh, I feel like it people will view that as uh, always bragging or he opened those numbers because he wants everyone to know how how smart and rich he is, right. which I'm not. Um, uh, I, I love the idea of of being fully open, but I'm afraid of the social consequences, unfortunately, of doing hmm, that. Interesting. So, do you do you feel like you've escaped the commitment of a job, or is Destroy All Software your job? Uh, it's sort of a job right now. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's uh, I, I'm in the studio two or three days a week, two, so about two and a half days a week for about three hours each time, not including biking back and forth. Um, so it doesn't take a huge amount of time. It's something like 10 hours a week uh, in the studio. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, it's a thing that I have to do, and it's actually really boring. Um, <laughs> the problem with screencasting is that you, you, you have two modes of doing it. Most people, when they screencast, they sit down, they write down an outline, they figure out what they want to say, uh, and then they record it in very small pieces and edit it together uh, after the fact. They do, they do post-recording editing. Mm-hmm. And that is not what I do. And in fact, as far as I know, I'm the only professional screencaster who does not do that. And what I do is I sit down, I just do something live, and then I do it over and over and over again, uh, up to maybe 12 or 14 times, end to end, before it's good enough. And it is, it is really sort of mind-numbing, to be honest. So you have to become an automaton of, of running through there? A, a little bit, yeah. I mean... Um, just imagine sitting in a room by yourself for three hours at a time, just saying the same thing over and over again in an authoritative tone of voice, right? Because you're, you're, it's like you're speaking to an audience. You, ha- you can't just be like, oh, so now we do this and click that. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I don't ever click. but um, uh, So yeah, imagine sitting in a room by yourself, speaking in an authoritative tone of voice, doing the same thing every 15 minutes for three hours. That, that's what screencasting is for me. Gotcha. <laughs> so yeah, it, it it gets a little a little tiresome. What makes you choose that approach as opposed to the other one with more editing afterwards? Um, it was I sort of just fell into it. I had done screencasts before I started doing it professionally. Uh, I had done them and just posted them on my blog. Uh, far less polished, of course. Mm. Um, but th- just the way that I fell into doing it was was just doing it over and over again. And my rule has always been that I do it until it stops changing. And when it stops changing... That means that, that my, there's nothing that, I, that my subconscious is bothered by. There's nothing that feels awkward to me that I feel like I need to change. Hmm. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons that, that my screencasts are, are generally viewed as, as very dense and as sort of having a, a very strong flow from one end to the other. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because I really am flowing from one end to the other. It's one continuous uh, chain of my thoughts. Hmm. So, so it's, it's a bit... Uh... It's a bit tedious, and you've been doing it for a while. And so, it's some, you you've mentioned that you're sort of thinking about what's next. You're starting to look into the the stopping, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, probably by spring, somewhere around e- either the two year anniversary of Destroy All Software or my thirtieth birthday, which happen to be right next to each other, um, probably somewhere around there on one of those dates, I'm going to stop if I make it that far. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm I'm honestly starting to run out of things to say, and when I tell people that I'm running out of things to say, they often they say, well, there's always new stuff to talk about, but uh, I, don't, I don't talk about new stuff. I don't, I don't talk about this new tool. Mm. Um, I explain, I try to explain 
some of the, the deepest understanding I have about software development, the deepest connections I've made. And you can't just go off and make a new fundamental <laughs> understanding about software in two weeks because you have a screencast coming up. That's, that's not how it works. Right. Um, so I think to some extent, I've sort of exhausted my, my reserves, all the things that I've figured out in 15 years of programming. I've, sort of, I've explained a lot of them. And uh, I need to go off and, and just have some creative time to, to figure out new things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what, uh, what works for you for that? When you go off and explore, are you like a log cabin in the woods kind of guy? Or do you, would you like to be in a coffee shop with people bustling around? What gets you in the zone? You know, I have so little insight into what really works. Uh, it's sort of pathetic. I, um, I have spent a lot of time working in coffee shops, um, but the noise drives me crazy. Uh, yesterday I was, or not yesterday, the day before yesterday I was in one and there was a woman immediately next to me who coughed about every 30 seconds and I just could not concentrate. I had to leave. Uh, on the other hand, when I'm alone and it's quiet, I tend to get distracted and, and not do any work. I get distracted by my own thoughts or I get distracted by the fact that I'm at home and you know there's a TV with an Xbox hooked up to it right next to me. Right. Um, so I've really failed. Uh, I actually have a, a desk in an office that I share with some friends right now that I just recently moved into. So it's sort of maybe a happy medium where there are other people around, but they're pro probably going to be a little bit more considerate uh, because we're, we all know each other. We're all friends. Um, so we'll see. But uh, sadly, I have I, I don't know what my ideal environment is. Hmm. So I want to keep on this uh, deep into the psyche of Gary Bernhardt thread for a second. Sure. Yeah. So do you have any irrational fears? Um, I, I think I have, this is getting deep into the psyche of Gary Bernhardt, yeah. especially on Twitter. I think that I have a pretty deep seated fear of either looking, looking stupid in public, looking wrong in public mm -hmm. or, or just people thinking I'm stupid or wrong or, or my ideas aren't good. Uh, I attach, I attach a lot of value to, uh, other people's perceptions of my own ideas, I think, mm. which is exactly why. I tend to get very frustrated on Twitter uh, and now I'm sort of psychoanalyzing myself. So take it with a grain of, of salt. <laughs> but um, when, when I ask, uh, when I ask a question, uh, a question that had that, that to me obviously has a very deep technical answer, right? a, a, a very subtle question about software and people are like, well, what about, what about Haskell? Like when that's their answer to my deep technical question, like would, would Haskell fix that? Uh, I, I, that feels like an attack to me. Right. It feels like someone is saying you are so inexperienced or just so dumb about software that you didn't even think that Haskell might exist. Right. Exactly. I get it. <laughs> yeah. I think I can so, follow you again now. <laughs> well, there you go. Now we, we've had a positive outcome oh, from, this, from this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think that's exactly what's going on on Twitter when I get frustrated because usually that's 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 what's that's what's uh, sort of tipping it off right is is these answers that feel so trivial exactly so and um, their 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 presumption is that you were unable of thinking of that yourself right and, and i mean when i think about it rationally in reality what's going on in that person's mind is that they probably uh have not they probably have not written haskell code or they've they've not known about haskell for you know eight years or well i haven't known about it for that long probably six years something like that uh, it's it's maybe new to them, and they're like, "Oh, I know about this new thing. It solves your problem." And uh, it turns out that that one person's new is another person's old. And unfortunately, my emotional reaction to that is much less reasonable than my than my um, than my sort of intellectual reaction to it to recognizing that they have a different context than I do. Mm. Uh, well, I I, pr I appreciate your honesty on that answer. That's one of those questions that 
is tough to answer in a straightforward and open way because to admit your fear is irrational is to admit that you are irrational. So I appreciate you uh, going on the limb and doing that. Sure. There's uh yeah, I, um, I've become quite comfortable with this in, in recent times. That's good. Um, well, awareness is half the battle. <laughs> that's what GI Joe said, that's, right? Absolutely. So, so what do you want to be when you grow up? I, I deduce from your, uh, your clues that you are 29. I am 29. So, so yeah. presumably you're going to be, you got another 30 years of programming or something. Yeah. If my, if my hands and my eyes hold that's up, right. that's the big question. Um, I don't know. I, uh, I, I don't plan a lot. I don't, I don't think very far into the future. Um, generally six months is, is pretty much my maximum window as far as planning, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I've only fairly recently decided that, that I want to stop screencasting in the spring because it's, you know, five months away now. Um, I think, uh, the, the thing that I care most about, the thing that I care most about correcting is removing some, at least some, of the massive pile of legacy that we've been building up for the last, uh, let's say, forty years uh, since 1969. Uh, the n- none of the layers underneath us change. We just build and build and build. Mm. Uh, it's the same thing in hardware. X86, right? X86 still has a lot of backwards compatibility stuff in it from the at least from the 386 days and i'm assuming back all the way to the 8086 there's there's probably stuff in there that's still hanging around Mm. uh i want to remove some of this probably not so much on the hardware side but on the software side Uh, i I really want to remove some of the just weight of the system that doesn't need to be there Hmm. okay Uh, and and, uh, with my little spiel about uh wanting to change the programming language and that going all the way down to the kernel. That's an example of that. Yeah. Gotcha. So when are you happiest? Um, Oh man, that's a good question. Uh, probably it's probably something about programming. It's, uh, I'm probably happiest when, when I, I find a deep symmetry in something that I that I feel is is novel. When I come up with a deep symmetry in software that I actually found on my own, mm. um, maybe somebody else found it before, but I I found it through my own sort of path, right? Independently. Um, for example, when I uh, when I discovered the relationship between isolated unit testing and separating mutation from from pure function uh, in in the way that Haskell does, uh, that was that was a tremendously satisfying experience. Just realizing that these two things are related and nobody is talking about it. Right? Nobody seems to know mm. um, that that's sort of why I do this. You know, it's not, I, I don't do this to, to build systems and see people use them. I like that, but that is not my deepest motivation. My deepest motivation is under is discovering something about the structure of the act of programming uh, and, and a way that it, it could be better. Got it. Well, that's, that's a good answer. That <laughs> and when do your tests pass? <laughs> uh, my tests always pass. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I think you're doing it wrong. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, no, testing is so natural for me at this point that it's just, um, as J.B. Rainsberger said, uh, tests, are, tests are just breathing. Mm. Uh, I don't, I, there's, there's actually very little reward for me just for making, for making tests pass or not anymore. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, well, um, I think that's all I have for you. Um, how would people get in touch with you if they want to shout care mad things at you at twitter and whatnot 
<laughs> uh, well, on, uh, you can you can always tweet at me, uh, Gary Bernhardt. I uh, I increasingly um, I filter I choose what to reply to at this point because you kind of have to when you have uh, what do I have almost eight thousand followers. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that would be that's the main that's my main public presence at this point uh, is Twitter. Okay. Just just don't don't tweet me a, a gist of two hundred lines of code and ask me to de- debug it for you. I don't, I don't <laughs> okay. like that. That sounds fair. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to give our our usual sign off. But I was wondering if you would close us out with your typical destroy all software sign off at the very end. Oh man. Is that, is oh, it's so hard to. Do, I, I actually. Oh, it's so hard to do it when I'm not in the flow. Of the screencast. <laughs> Can um, you pretend you just think... talked about functional verse or functional core and parent yeah, shell? Yeah. Maybe. Let's see. Um... <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you do, can you throw it in there at the at the end? Uh, well, give me give me just one second, and I can do it. I can do it right All now. Right. Oh, you want me to do it after sign off? Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm, yeah, I'll wrap it up, and then you you close the door. <laughs> all right, all right. Go ahead. I'll try to do it. All right. So uh, I'll, I'll thank you first, and thanks, Gary, for for uh, virtually coming by and chatting with me. It was uh, it was good to talk to you. All right. Thank you. Yeah. And today's podcast was recorded by Shauna Quintal, edited by Edward Lovell, and produced by Chad Pytel. Uh, that's gonna be it for this podcast, and I will see you in two weeks. Thank you.